For those uh, who are remaining, if you would open up a copy of God's Word uh, to our text this morning, which is Colossians 1. Particularly, uh, we're going to look at the end of chapter 1, beginning verse 24. And you can find it in the Pew Bible there, I believe, on page 983. And uh, we are looking at this letter this summer. We're giving careful attention to the details of a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to a particular church that he had never had a chance to visit. I jokingly pointed out last week that because of the way that Paul starts to comprise and draw out, so to speak, these circles, that it's almost as if he's trying to, uh, to fashion and build out a, a gigantic uh, Venn diagram. And that the center of that is uh, the person and work of Jesus. But even greater is the fact that he's not just the hub of a wheel or a Venn diagram, but that he is the totality. Jesus is the sovereign over all of the spheres of life and disciplines that we should know or could possibly bump into. And he is the pinnacle uh, of all of that, the basis. He runs through all. That's the ongoing theme that we see, even as last week we covered. He is uh, before all things. He's all-encompassing. That phrase, even in the opening of chapter 1, all things, all things. He has all authority. He has all power. He has uh, all the relevancy and the supremacy. And in fact, it even says that all things were created, Paul writes there, just verses before our text, were created by Him and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. That means... All things. So what else, what else is uh, in the mix? Well, there's beautiful things. He speaks of what Christ has done for them, what Christ has done in them as disciples. He commends them, this church that he has been hearing reports about because of their great love and affection for one another, uh, because they uh, enjoy things together like hope. Uh, he commends their faith. He speaks of what Christ has done for them and Christ's forgiveness, the redemption, the fruit of that. Uh, the fruit of, of the wisdom of Christ and the, the fruit that comes because of the power and the universal message of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We looked at the, the supremacy for Jesus, the recipe for joy and refreshment and encouragement uh, Paul has set out for us. But then something comes in here in a moment in verse 24 that some might argue sours the recipe uh, just a little bit. OK, and uh, and it's it's something that is is undesirable. Paul throws something in the mix, a dimension of what it means to know and follow Jesus. That is, at least when we're in a season of life of, of, of growth in Christ that is immature, that we find this to be very, a very unpleasant uh, ingredient. So I know you just sat down, but let me invite you again to stand as we look at this and show deference to God's word. We're going to read beginning in verse 24. Hear this. This is the word of God. Now, Paul writes, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy, and he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, for I want 
you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to uh, just focus uh, on verses 24 down through uh, chapter 2, verse 3. But I I wanted to read uh, the whole of uh, that opening paragraph of chapter 2. Why don't we ask for God's help? Father, would you please make known... By, by the persuasive work, not, not, not of my words, uh, but the working of your spirit to shine light on your word. Cause us to hear, uh, cause us to listen uh, to and, and listen for your voice, for your will, for us individually, but also us as a, as a church, as a corporate family, for Christ's sake and his mission. Amen. Growing up, my mom uh, was and is. Uh, very busy in the kitchen. Uh, she is a fantastic cook uh, and, and baker, and, uh, and, and she's done a marvelous job of turning my wife into a fantastic cook and baker, if I do say so. Uh, the kids in my neighborhood growing up would actually come to my house and ask for leftovers. I still have a distinct image of Ryan, my, my, my next-door neighbor out back, and he would just stand in front of our refrigerator like this right here open. Is there anything in here? And then my mom had a refrigerator outside because she would always have cakes or other goodies in that refrigerator. And then Brian would go outside and look through that as well. Occasionally, she would rope me into one of these, uh, you know, baking exercises. Troy, can you go get the chocolate chip? I like where this is going. Troy, could you go get the, the white fudge? Could you go get uh, the, the flour and the sugar? And I really like where this is going, Mom. Uh, while you're at the pantry, could you grab the nuts? Mom. Do we have to have nuts? It gets worse because sometimes she would say, oh, what about the, uh, the oatmeal and the raisins? Mom, 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 could we not do that? But they add texture, honey. They, they add flavor. And at the time, I couldn't see it. Uh, but uh, now I do. I am, I'm, I've grown up. She said to me, I'm sure at one point or another, someday you'll learn to appreciate this. Someday you'll like nuts. And here I am. I, I do. And uh, I am nuts. And I'm glad I'm not allergic to nuts. Uh, you know how it is. You walk into a restaurant or any eating establishment. More and more you see it now. Uh, would you please tell the server if you or anyone in your party is allergic to anything? Uh, I always want to just, you know, just when people say allergies, anyone? I say, yep, I got two. Pain and debt. Uh, I don't like either of those things. And, uh, and so when Paul, you know, when you're trying to introduce people to Christ, and some of you are not yet followers of Christ, and, and we're glad you're here. But this is not what I would lead with. Uh, I'd love for you to, to discover the, the riches of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the love of Jesus. But here it is. Here is that unpleasant ingredient that characterizes everyone's life, whether you're a Christian or not, and sometimes even because you're a Christian, and that is suffering. Now, suffering, 
the whole theme, I've, I've said this even in previous weeks as we've been uh, getting geared up and working through the opening of this study of Colossians, that the purpose of the book, I think, is somewhat captured in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Wait, 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 what? Suffering is part of walking in Christ? I hate to be Debbie Downer, but that's the truth. Initially, I, I, when I studied this text, I was thinking that the unifying theme that pulls this together that Paul would have us see is the mystery. And that's part of it, but really I think it is actually suffering. Here are my three headings. The nature of ministry, the hope of mystery, and the goal of maturity. I have them listed there in the order of service. And I want to help us connect each of those with this theme of suffering, Christ's suffering, our suffering. So the nature of ministry, Paul, like I said, has not seen them. But as is the case with many churches, and even the fact that he wants this to extend out to Laodicea, which is another uh, neighboring uh, city and town which has a church there, his labors helped form so many of these churches and the messengers and the others that he had sent out as ambassadors. He's gone to great lengths to see the gospel prosper and to, to travel to, uh, to the Gentiles, uh, to beyond his people, as though he is, uh, of course, a Jew and knows God's word, the Hebrew Bible, uh, backward and forward. But now he's in prison, uh, or maybe in, under some form of house arrest as he writes this letter. He refers to himself in verse 25 there, as a, uh, chapter 1, as a minister, which is simply a word that means a servant. And that is exactly what he is. And it shouldn't surprise us because that's what Jesus is. Even as our call to worship, as we open in uh, the very beginning, responsibly, Philippians 2, Christ, in, in, in coming, on, coming down as a missionary, uh, was and is our incarnate, took, taking on the humble frame of a human being, flesh, Jesus is servant. But what is the nature of, of his servant ministry, or, or uh, of any servant of Christ's ministry, it all originates with God. That's why in verse 25, he says, I am a steward. So in, in other words, he's merely saying, Paul's saying, I'm just a manager of the one who, who owns all of it. And he's the one who has the power. He is the one who deserves the allegiance and, and, and the praise. He's a steward sent to do a variety of things. Obviously, some of his tasks as the Apostle Paul, that's part of his title, his authority, is as an evangelist, as, as an apostle, as a church planter, uh, it is somewhat unique. But we're all uh, called to a ministry of service for the sake of those in the church and for the sake of those who are not yet, those who are outside of Christ's church. What's the nature of some of this that Paul is modeling for us and referencing? Well, if you look at some of the verbs and the adjectives here, which I'm even shy to even say those two words because I don't know grammar all that well. Uh, but verse 25, it says that he, he made known things. And then verse 28, he is proclaiming, uh, he's warning, he's teaching. You, you get another glimpse into it when in verse 29 he says, toiling. You get the sense of his, his labor and, uh, and his great struggle, that's where it, you know, it comes into focus, even spilling over into chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. 
I love it that, that it's not self-referenced. That his service isn't for his name, his reputation, his earnings, his joy. It is for them. It is for, for them that if you look at it carefully, he has made it very abundantly clear. But woven into this is something, like I said, that I, I, I missed. I skipped and I wanted to. And it's verse 24, the painful ingredients. Ingredient, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then, just to make it worse and even more confusing, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. What? What what does he mean? I mean, first of all, what does he mean, rejoice in sufferings? Uh, I mean, is is Paul just the proverbial uh, glutton for punishment? Is he a masochist? Is he delusional? I, I don't think so. I think actually this is a man who understands that the, the goal and the motivation is worth it. That Jesus being proclaimed to and formed in others is his goal. His motivation is Jesus, Jesus, his and our suffering servant and savior who gives of his life and all of the, the, the toil, all of the all that Paul did and would experience by way of rejection and misunderstanding and loss, physical pain, emotional anguish, loneliness, this has come more and more with hope and with mystery. I'll get to that in a, in a moment. But the second question is, what on earth does he mean in verse 24 also to say that he's suffering, that he may fill up what is lacking, that he may be, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What? Is Paul somehow suggesting that we need him or others to be our redeemer so that we can complete our salvation? Is he saying that Christ's work wasn't quite enough and we need to round it off? No. This is where it's so important when we think about principles of interpreting Scripture that Scripture interprets Scripture. And the testimony of of Paul here and elsewhere, if you just go further back into chapter 1, we see that he has already affirmed that Christ has offered a payment in in verse 20 that he has reconciled all things. So there's nothing left behind in the blood of his cross and the forgiveness that is offered so freely because of his shed blood. It's never been and it never would be for Paul Jesus plus good works and sacrifice and ministry. No, Jesus has paid it all. And in response to that, Paul is going and being a servant. And if you need any further proof, just go and spend a few minutes reading through another epistle, which is Galatians, a few pages back. You will see that there is nothing that we can add to salvation. We're not going to make Christ's afflictions uh, more applicable because of our suffering. So when, what does he mean then? Let me ask you a question before I answer that or try to. Is Christ Jesus suffering right now? If your head's nodding like this, that's good because the answer is both. Uh, No, he's not physically. He does have the physical signs of that suffering in his scars. But Jesus is Still suffering because 
He's unified with us, his body, his people, the church in the world. I'll never forget. At one point I was reading uh, Acts and, and Luke records for us that on the, the road to Damascus, Saul, who was this Hebrew of Hebrews who despised Christian Christians, is walking down the road. And Acts chapter nine, verse four says, Saul, Saul. He stops him with a bright light and radiance, the risen Christ. So he's already ascended. He's calling out to, to, uh, to, uh, to Saul. And he says, why are you persecuting me? Why would he say me? Jesus is ascended, except that it's his body, the, the believers that Saul wanted to kill. And he's converted on the spot and he is, he is given a new name and a new identity in Christ. And he's living for Jesus now. Paul is, as an apostle, for the sake of Christ's body, who is the church. So here Paul is, in essence, saying salvation is secure and paid for. But there is more that the Father has appointed for us as his people to endure and to suffer. Not because things were insufficient, but it just wasn't filled up and that there is a plan and a purpose that God has for the suffering of Christ's uh, church in the kingdom, for the expansion of it into the nations and living for Jesus. The spread of the gospel. Let's look again at our text, verse 29. Paul here, let me read it for us. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So clearly Paul is saying, he's quick to point out that the toil and the struggle and the labors, it's all energy that he's gained from God to do, that it's God's power working in him and working in us and through his people. Paul doesn't seek the suffering. Paul didn't say, I I just can't wait to go drum up some suffering. Maybe I'll be shipwrecked next week or maybe I'll be thrown in prison or maybe I'll be stoned or maybe I'll be rejected by people that used to love me. No, it just came with life, with relationships, with ministry, not by accident, but by God's sovereign plan. Paul and we endure suffering. But he knows that this suffering produces something Something unexpected, even beautiful. There's even this echo of this very same theme. And Paul writes of it in Romans 5 when he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces miserable, selfish, horrible, No, no, no. He says, no, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit through whom he has given to us. Clearly, Paul is. Paul has learned something that most of us are still in the process of discovering and learning. Me very much included. That again and again, suffering produces something in us and through us. This moves on to my next point, and I want to bring more of it into focus. But this next one is the hope of mystery. Because that's where this other theme comes in. It's pretty obvious because Paul mentions it three times. He talks about the mystery at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. The Greek word there is mysterion. 
What does he mean? Sometimes we talk about mystery. We are referring to something that is just forever, altogether, unknown, undiscoverable, unanswered. Last week, I was at our PCA denominations uh, general assembly. I mentioned that uh, last week and I had a chance to, to room with Pastor Matt Owens, who many of you know and love. He says to tell you hello. Uh, God's been working in their church, uh, Seven Hills Presbyterian, after we, you know, we, we had to, to uh, close down our church plant in Quincy and, and he's now serving up in Somerville at, at Seven Hills. He's doing great. I love listening to, to, uh, to Matt reflect and talk and preach. And He was talking about a TED Talk uh, which is completely unrelated to the Word of God right now, but just bear with me for a second. Here's this TED Talk that he's telling me about with J.J. Abrams. Anyone know who J.J. Abrams is? Whether you do or you don't, you have definitely been exposed to him. He is a well-known writer and, uh, and, and film producer and composer. He, he's written you know, films in the, the stream of Star Wars and, and Mission Impossible and uh, probably best known, at least uh, for many people, he really hit the scene big with this TV show called Lost. Which came out just before we moved into this space, which, man, if you walk around this architecture with all the concrete, it just seems like a weird episode from Lost sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> Think about that. This octagonal concrete down below us. How many of you have watched Lost? How much have you watched Lost and then gave up? I, I see a similar number of hands raised, right? Well, I'm going to make sense of something for you. And this is not a spoiler alert because you don't even need one. J.J. Abrams gives a TED Talk on mystery. And in the context of explaining mystery, which he defines as a catalyst for imagination, he talks about how much he loves mystery. Mystery is a a fascinating thing to J.J. Abrams. And he talks about how mystery uh, is, 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 is more compelling, which he defines as the unanswered questions that are even more compelling than the answers themselves. He illustrates this by talking about how his grandfather in the TED Talk, he says, you know, my grandfather, uh, he, he really adores this, you know, this grandfather of his who exposed him to all types of things. And one day in New York City, his grandfather took him to a magic shop. And the magic shop, he bought him a, a, a gift, and it was a box. It was, it's the mystery box, and uh, the mystery box was $15, but it had $50 worth of magic tricks in the box. All these years, he has kept this, and J.J. Abrams brings it out and sets it on a stool during his TED Talk, and lo and behold, it's all taped up. It has a big question mark on it. All of these years, this childhood box, and he's, I'm not a hoarder. I, I, I'm not a, a real sentimental keepsake kind of person. But you can clearly see that the box isn't open. And that's the way he's wanted it all of his life. Because he likes what it offers. It's the infinite possibilities, he says, of the unknown. It's, it's emblematic. It's representative. I like the, the, the mystery box because it offers hope. Which helps us make a lot of sense of Lost. I actually love Alias, which was prior to Lost, which he also produced. But Lost, think about it. There's different types of mystery. That's the type of mystery that sometimes you think about. But you're listening for it when you watch Lost. And you're like, how does this fit together? You're just waiting, right? You're waiting for that, that, that missing piece, that link. And people are theorizing. And people are, are trying to figure out what it is that just brings it all into focus. And it never comes. 
I'm not spoiling it for you. I'm just helping you if you decide to go on a binge watching of Lost that just know what you're in store for. It's not coming. It's okay. I guess it is, right? But then contrast that with another, with another form of genre uh, of mystery and another definition of mystery. And that's more in the stream of, you know, Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers or, uh, you know, uh, Doyle's, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes, right? Because that's a mystery that's like an open secret. Right? Because the mystery there, which this is now leaving J.J. Abrams, but think about it, as Matt and I were discussing this, it's like, it's, it's almost as if the open secret in those stories, you get to the end and it's satisfying because it is sewn up, because you do see it come into focus, and then you go, wait a minute, all along it was so and so. Thank you, Stephen King, that killed so and so. I wouldn't have seen it, but now I do, and I should have seen it all along. That's the mystery that is revealed. And that's the type of mystery that Paul is laying out for us. It's been there. It's been there all along. It's an open secret. The mystery is to be resolved and revealed. And we find that to be satisfying. We don't want just questions. We don't want just mystery that it's, that's unresolved as a form of tension. No, we want to see it come into focus. And that's what happens. Look with me again at our text. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God, my friends, has planned before the foundation of the world, a plan that begins soon after the fall into sin and the curse, He chose a people for himself by his sovereign mercy. Those were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant community. And the mystery is coming more and more into focus all throughout the Hebrew Bible in types and windows and pictures and promises and prophecies and prophets and priests and kings. And it comes into focus. And the mystery is a Messiah who is not only a Messiah for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. The ethne is the word there that Paul uses, which is another word of saying everybody else in the world outside of the Jewish people. That's what God had planned all along. Not, not part two, not prequel, not sequel. not No, it's just all along this redemptive plan that would include the nations. Christ in you is part of the mystery. The collective, even the, even the discussion about it in Acts chapter 5, when he says there is no distinction between us and them because the Gentiles, us, we, most of us as far as I know, have been cleansed. Our hearts cleansed by faith. You know, you think about this. All all the major religions historically or presently in the world, all of them are largely, not exclusively, but primarily bound by culture and language. And there is one glaring, obvious exception to that. And it is Christianity. It transcends Culture, all, all forms of, of, of barriers, all diversity. It's the very 
it's the very image that John has so gloriously laid before us in Revelation chapter 7. When he sees before him, After this I look and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who is Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Folks, that's where we're heading. Newsflash. So how how does suffering fit into that mystery? That hope of of a of a a mysterious plan that we should have seen all along and God had it there all along and coming into focus. Where does suffering fit into that? Well, by God's design, it's the martyrs. It's the persecution of his people. It's the messengers. It's the, it's the people praying. It's, it's people giving. It's people going. It's people sacrificing as the body of Christ to expand the body of Christ. The church is to spread the gospel and to spread and to show the power of God at work in the gospel. We are a people who can and do suffer and we do grieve just like everyone else, except with something and without something. It is with hope and not with, it is without despair. Paul knows that the the suffering, the sacrifice, the toil, the travel, it must take place to cause the gospel to spread so that a diverse group of people can be gathered and knit together like they are, mostly Gentiles in Colossae, but he says that in verse 2 of chapter 2. That he's, he wants to see that love which knits them together, formed and forged because of Jesus. The hope of the gospel. He is a good steward. He is being a good manager. He says, okay, God, if you're going to bring suffering, if you're going to bring this calling of my life, then you need to, you know, I, I, I need you. I'll be with you. I, I'm glad you haven't abandoned me. But this is, this is okay. I, I think I can actually rejoice in this. That's going back to that weird, bizarre ingredient in all of this, isn't it? Let me give you two examples of where I've thought of this happening, seeing this formed and forged. Even, that, even those, the filling up of the afflictions, just the, the going out. I, I was last year, uh, at, again, I was at our, our, our PCA General Assembly, and I ran into a young woman that I recognized. I hadn't seen her in probably 15, 20 years. And she was a young woman in high school in my Sunday school class when I was in seminary. And, and now she's, she's, she's standing there with this, this tall guy. And, and they showed me pictures of their five daughters. And they've been serving to advance the gospel in, in India. They got kicked out of India. Uh, and now they're, they're living in Japan with their children, way far away from a family. I know their family. I know the sweet relationship that they have. What are they doing? They're living for the cause of Christ. They're living as pilgrims going to a place and trying to gather more worshipers for the king who is worthy. And all I can say to them is thank you. Thank you for serving the king and the kingdom. And and they said, he, and we said it together, he is worthy, isn't he? And last week, I, I talked to 
uh, to Kelsey Sullivan on the phone. Some of you know her, talented track athlete, grew up here, and she's been to our church a number of times, was converted to Christ. Uh, you know, none of her family are followers of Jesus, hardly. And, and she, as some of you know, because we've been praying for her for months now, she was in a horrible car accident. No one thought she would live. There's a whole span of 10 days that she doesn't even remember. She's still in, in, in rehab, trying to recover physically. But praise God, God's been answering prayers. And I ask her how she's doing. And you know me, I'm nosy and I'm, I'm, I'm like totally not allergic to awkward. And so I just ask her, are you okay? How are you doing? Financially, how are you doing? Are you emotionally okay? Fill me in, Kelsey. Thank you so much for calling. And she says, you know what? I just rejoice in this suffering. What? That she can see the hand of God to slow her down, to bring into focus the love of God for her, to see God powerfully work, and not only for her sake, but the church there and some of you and others who know her that are part of the body of Christ have been giving financially and been, you know, serving her and visiting her. And she goes, I'm so glad that I've been suffering so that my family can see the love of God and the generosity of the people of God because it's making them wonder about Jesus. This is a woman who is experiencing a suffering that is bringing her into maturity in Christ that wouldn't happen, obviously, in God's design without the suffering, which leads to my, my last point. Just briefly, the goal of maturity is in view here. In many ways, I've already touched upon this because the goal is that the gospel would spread this good news of the mystery unfolding, gathering more nations, more tongues, more tribes, more people. A diverse fellowship that when you look at Revelation 7, you don't see how all of that just disappears. All of the diversity remains. But it's the king, the lamb who is worshipped. That's part of the goal. But the goal is also here now being mature, complete, that is to say, verse 28. Look at the text in Christ that we may present everyone mature. Paul writes in Christ. This is an ongoing work and it must involve us navigating through suffering. But it's not just waiting in an agonizing mystery that will never be resolved or revealed. We will know. I had it happen this week, and you've all been there. You get on the phone trying to talk to someone in a tech support scenario, and I won't mention any names, and I won't mention any products, and I'm really tempted to do that, but I won't. But I'm calling, and I'm waiting, and then they, she says to me, the, 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 the human that I've been waiting for 30 minutes to talk to, that I need to talk to someone in another department. But it's 5.02, and that department is closed. And then when I call the next morning, they say, no, you need to go online, which I'd already done. And I'd already filled out a form and gotten a reference number and gotten this. And you're just like, is this really? This is, this is agonizing mystery. Because I don't even know if I'm going to get someone who can resolve this. I, could someone escalate this? God, where are you in my suffering? Could someone please escalate this? Because this is not what I wanted. And I'm getting tired of waiting. But sometimes you wait on the phone or online with tech support and it isn't resolved. Or it is resolved because you had to unplug your computer and whatever. And you feel like stupid. This is not about stupidity. And this is not about the misery of waiting. This is the heavenly father who cares enough 
about his king and his kingdom, his kingdom expanding, and the king and the image of Jesus being formed and fashioned in you. That I, I, I wish, young people, I wish we could skip the suffering, but we won't, and we can't, and it's coming. Draw near to Jesus. He is willing to answer. There is glory. There is something. This is not a mystery that is just a teaser and a question and an unresolved and an unanswered and going on and on and on. This is a mystery that is to be revealed. Christ is to be revealed. We are united to Christ. Christ himself is part of that mystery. Chapter 2, verse 2. Their hearts being encouraged, being knit together in love to reach the riches of the full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery. What's the mystery? Christ. I want to draw near to that. We're waiting a glory that is not yet. But the pattern is this. Trouble, suffering, now. Glory, not yet. Then. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the assurance. That's that's the adoption. That's the sweetness. But here he says too in verse 17, Romans 8, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Dude, I'm liking this. Sounds like a good recipe. Let's go ahead and just put that in the oven, call it good and enjoy it. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, no, no, no way around this one? No way. Why do we suffer? Now, some of you are thinking, and it's hot in here, isn't it? You're thinking, now that's a really stupid question to ask, Troy. At the end of a sermon, why do we suffer? Okay, fair enough. Here's my other question. Why do we suffer with rejoicing, as Paul claims here? The reason we suffer is, is the reasons, plural, are many and varied. Sometimes we suffer because of sinful, selfish, foolish choices of our own. We suffer because we, because me, we, we do. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's choices and priorities and deeds. Sins of omission and commission. Sometimes we suffer because God wanted to discipline us. And he disciplines those he loves. Don't go to that one first. Sometimes we suffer because he wants to shape us and he does love us. Sometimes we suffer because he chose, because we choose to follow Jesus and there's things that come with that. We're rejected or we're mocked or misunderstood. The list goes on. Sometimes we suffer because of the cost of discipleship, which is high, a high cost. But the suffering is always with Christ. In Christ. He does not leave us. He does not overburden us or forsake us or lack love for us. And what he is doing in us and through us is yet to be fully revealed, but it will be. That's a promise. Wait on the Lord. Yes, you may doubt. You may struggle. It's C.S. Lewis who puts it well. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. That's so good. Let me just read it again. We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. 
in our experience. Most of the application you've already heard me share, it's by way of thinking, right? Of our perspective, of our outlook that may need to shift and might need to change. Here's one other small application and then I'll sit down. I would say it relates more to the area of service and ministry. When you're suffering, friends, it's so tempting. And I'm telling you, I can relate. It is so tempting to retreat and to break down and to turn in and to feed and wallow in self-pity. If you're suffering, not if, when you're suffering, and many of you are in various forms and ways, please don't retreat. Go serve other people who are suffering. It will help you to see Christ, the weight of glory. It will be for God's glory. It will be for their joy. It will be for your hope. It will be for your Well, it's the pattern of Christ, the pattern of Paul, the pattern of mature disciples in Christ throughout all the ages. It's a pattern that is to be replicated. Yes, like a a recipe, crunchy with all of its nuts, the nuts of suffering baked in whether you like it or not. Here's the pattern. Trouble and trials and suffering now and glory then. Pray with me. Father, would you please help us to understand more, to cherish more of Christ, his plan, his his appointed plan down through the ages to, to be our king, our savior, to be a Messiah for the nations, to gather worshipers. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to be a church, a people in the community, individually and collectively, to bear witness to Christ, even in our sufferings. May we be filled with hope. May we be filled with repentance and faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray for other churches in our presbytery and in our area that need unity, that need a pastor, that need a minister, the shepherd. Keep them, Lord. Keep them unified and with your love. Lord, I pray that you would make us mature and complete in Christ. Our children, our future generations, Thank you, God, for the example of the church triumphant. Please help us as we continue to battle. Pray for those who are on the front lines and and labor as missionaries and chaplains, chaplains in, in prisons and chaplains on campuses and chaplains that are, are serving overseas with our troops. Lord, I pray for the persecuted church today, for our brothers and sisters in country where they're, they're meeting in house churches and, and, and under secret they're, they're, they're accused, they're misunderstood, they lose their jobs. They have pressures, trials and sufferings that we don't know just because they are followers of you in places like Indonesia and Pakistan and India and China and Egypt and the list goes on. Would you cause them to persevere? Bring yourself glory by showering mercy and causing them to stand firm. Thank you for their example. Bless them, we pray. Bless those who are struggling with various forms of suffering. Keep them near to Christ, all of us. May we abide in Christ and bear much fruit. We pray in his name, even now, as he taught his disciples, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.